Thank you, Ryan. It's good to see everybody here this morning. Good morning. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're finally closing out uh, the first chapter uh, of this epistle of 2 Peter. We've slowly gone through uh, this first chapter, and now we're coming to the closing verses in it, verses 19 to 21. So go ahead and turn there. This is a message that I've titled, The Authority of Scripture. Christian author and apologist Robbie Zacharias, he tells the story of doing a lecture several years ago at Ohio State University. And as he was being driven to the lecture, his car passed a very odd-looking building on campus called the Wexner Art Center. And the driver commented, this is the new art building for the university. It is a, a fascinating building. Its design is intended to be postmodern. And he explained further that the building has no coherent pattern. Staircases go nowhere, pillars support nothing. The architect designed the building to reflect the postmodern philosophy of life. It portrays incompleteness and even meaninglessness at different points. And Zacharias turned to the driver at this point, who was describing the new art building, and asked, did they do the same thing with the foundation? <laughs> and the man laughed and answered, no, you, you can't do that with the foundation." And so here's my point. If you're going to base your entire life on something, if you're going to look to something for meaning and, and purpose and joy, aren't you going to make sure that that something is solid? And if you're going to stake your eternity on that same thing, you definitely want to be sure that it is the truth. It would be utterly tragic to spend your life walking a path that you thought led to heaven only to find out that you couldn't have been more wrong. And as we've seen so far in our study of this epistle, Peter, he knows that he's about to die. He says this in chapter 1, verse 14. And because of his impending death, he wants to leave his beloved readers a solid foundation. This letter is written in the late 60s AD, and false teachers are already plaguing the early churches. False teachers are beginning to, to ravage the truth by establishing a, a self-serving teaching of their own initiation. And their strategy throughout the early church was to, to come in and to discredit the testimony of the apostles. The apostles were those who, who knew the risen Christ or saw the risen Christ or had received direct testimony from those in relationship with the risen Christ. And since Peter is chief among the apostles, he, he writes this letter so that they will know and distinguish truth from error. And he does this so that, the, so that the church will be left with a solid and sure testimony and not give way to false teaching. In chapter 1, verses 16 to 18, Peter boldly states that the apostles... They were not following cleverly devised tales when they made known the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Rather, the profound experience that they had on the Mount of Transfiguration when they witnessed Jesus' majesty, that was a sure and prophetic glimpse that Jesus is who he said he was and that he would be coming again in power and in glory to reign forever. And if you just maybe jump ahead to chapter 3, just, just leaf over a couple of pages, maybe just one page in your Bible. I'm going to highlight verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. 
where Peter says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? You see, these false teachers, they're denying the second coming. Peter had been told of Jesus' second coming, even got a a glimpse of that glorious coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. But the false teachers were scoffing and would continue to scoff at this idea. So really, what is at stake for Peter here as he pins this letter? What is at stake is authority. Is Peter an authority? Was his eyewitness testimony authoritative? Do the scriptures have authority? And how do the answers to those questions stack up with the false teachers, these men who claim to be an authority to themselves? Let's read 2 Peter 1, verses 19 to 21. Inspired of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes, So we have the prophetic word, made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So you see, this is an extremely important passage of Scripture. Perhaps no passage in the Bible says more about the origin of the Bible than the one we're looking at today. And as we get started, I'll say this as well. There is nothing more foundational for how you live your life than how you view the Bible. There's nothing more foundational for how you live your life than how you view the Bible. The way you live your life pivots on what you believe about God's Word. And so I broke this passage down into three points, putting sort of a sub-point with each idea. First point, Scripture is sure, how we know Scripture has authority. Second, Scripture is shining, why we need Scripture to have authority. And then Scripture is Spirit-given, who gives Scripture its authority. In my car now, I have a, a, a CD in the CD player. I, I don't have the whole auxiliary cable thing. I still listen to CDs in my car. But it's a compilation of duets between Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash. <laughs> and there's a song on that CD called The Family Bible. And the tension of the song is it's not Johnny Cash who sings it. It's Willie Nelson. And it goes, there's a family Bible on the table. It's pages worn and hard to read. But the family Bible on the table will ever be my key to memories. At the end of the day when work was over, when the evening meal was done, Dad would read to us from the family Bible, and we'd count our blessings one by one. I can see us sitting round the table, as from the family Bible Dad would read. I can hear my mother softly singing. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Now this old world of ours is filled with trouble, but this old world would oh much better be if we found more family Bibles on the tables and mothers singing Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Now, kind of sentimental, right? A bit nostalgic, 
kind of a view of the Bible that is more cultural artifact than authoritative word of God. And that's how a lot of people view the Bible today. This isn't the authoritative word of God given by the Spirit to reveal who God is and demanding your submissive response. This is just a part of our youth, a part of our, his, our, part of our history or the history of this country or the history of Western civilization, but not so much in authority. We stand over the Bible. The Bible doesn't stand over us. So let's look at this first point. Scripture is sure. How we know Scripture has authority. The first half of verse 19 has two popular interpretations. I'm going to give you the one that I don't agree with first. And it's this. Many respectable Bible teachers explain that where it says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, they say that, that, that Peter is saying the word of God is more sure and trustworthy than his experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That the word of God is more trustworthy than that experience that he just referenced. So God spoke in an audible voice. We, which is the apostles that were there, they, they, they heard it. They witnessed the glory of the transfigured Christ. Yet the Old Testament scriptures are more certain than that event. That's what some people would say of, of this text. And this interpretation is taking a high view of Scripture, which I'm all about, a very high view of Scripture. But this view does something unnecessary and quite confusing. It pits God's revelation against God's revelation. So it takes Peter's argument in the previous passage that he was an eyewitness to Christ's majesty, which is something he brought up to, to bolster his authority. And, see, and he says, or, or this view says, but that experience is not of truly great Important as com importance as compared to the Word of God. John MacArthur takes this view. Mark Bailey, who's president of DTS, takes this view. Many others take it as well. I wouldn't disparage it greatly. I don't take it. Mark doesn't take this view either. Here's the, inter the interpretation I would agree with. I think what Peter is saying is this transfiguration experience that he just referenced it corroborated the prophetic promises from the Old Testament. It validates what the Old Testament predicts. It confirms it. It makes it more sure. And here's why that makes sense. The false teachers that Peter is rebuking, they were discrediting what the Old Testament affirmed about the Messiah, even denying his second coming. But Peter's saying, no way. No way. The scriptures are sure. They were right about his first coming. Therefore, they are to be trusted concerning his second coming. After all, the promise of the future kingdom ruled by Jesus the Messiah was reaffirmed for us on the Mount of Transfiguration. It was reaffirmed by Moses, by Elijah, by the Son of God, by God the Father, who showed up and spoke audibly. And then plus, the Holy Spirit inspired the record of the event for the church to then read and understand. So it seems preferable that Peter is saying the Transfiguration proves the Old Testament prophets have given us a sure word about Jesus Christ. And before we leave this, this point about prophecy, consider for a moment just, just a few of the Old Testament prophecies with regard to Jesus Christ. It's said that there are over 300 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament. But let's just take a few. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. That's in Isaiah 7. Of the tribe of Judah. That's in Genesis 49. Of the lineage of David in 2 Samuel 7. In the city of Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. His ministry would be introduced by a man who would speak in the spirit and power of Elijah. We see that in Malachi 3. 
That's, of course, fulfilled in John the Baptist. Other prophecies speak of his, his ministry, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. They speak of his miracles, Isaiah 35. Speak of his triumphant entry into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. Psalm 22 itself, Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even invented, it describes Jesus' death on the cross. It describes the taunt of his accusers. It describes the soldiers casting lots for his garments. It mentions specifically that his grave would be assigned with wicked men, yet it also states he would be with a rich man at his death. And as you know, he was crucified between two thieves, and he he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And all of these, plus others, were specifically fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. Years ago, there was a math professor named Peter Stoner, and he wrote a little book called Science Speaks. And in it, he assigns probabilities to a number of biblical prophecies and then calculates the odds that these things could have happened by sheer chance. And in one chapter, he takes just just eight prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and uses very conservative estimates to determine how probable it is that anyone could have fulfilled them all. And his answer is, his probability answer is 1 and 10 to the 17th power. How big is that number? Just to illustrate, Professor Stoner says, take 10 to the 17th power, take that in silver dollars, and lay them on the face of the state of of Texas. And they will cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars, stir it into the whole mix, blindfold a man, and tell him he can go as far as he wants to into the sea of silver dollars and just pick one. His chances of picking the marked silver dollar are the same that the prophets would have had of writing just eight prophecies, apart from divine inspiration, and having them all come true in one man, Jesus Christ. That's just eight prophecies. Not, Not the hundreds that Jesus fulfilled. This is why Jesus, he, he's, he told the Pharisees, he, he told the religious leaders in John chapter 9, verse 39, as they're studying the scriptures, he's saying, these are they that speak of me. These, those are the words of his mouth, him saying, these Old Testament scriptures are all about me. They're pointing to me. They speak of me. So Peter's first point is we have the, the solid foundation of the prophetic word, which was made even more sure by the apostles' experience of seeing Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Second point, Scripture is shining. Why we need Scripture to have authority. Peter continues in the second half of verse 19, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The word used for dark here is is broader than a lack of physical light. This is the word uh, for for murky or or dirty, squalid is the definition that I came across that I kind of liked. Peter is saying this world is foul and it is dirty. People are just bowing to what the culture believes or to to, to whatever validation they feel they might need. And and the cultural validation can be anything from, from your bank account balance to your dress size to your own moral goodness or your intellect. Some very frightening sources of authority exist in our world, and nobody is truly their own autonomous authority. Nobody. All of us, let me just say this, all of us give authority to at least three dominant sources. Three sources other than scriptures 
other than the scriptures, have authority in your life. The three sources are our mind, our heart, and tradition. And, and let me just say, these three sources of authority can be really, really helpful at times. But we, can, but we can't absolutely rely on them, and that's why we need the scriptures to, to move in and to shine its light. What do I mean exactly by that? Well, just consider your mind. Our mind comprises our ability to reason, our rational abilities, our skill and logic. Our mind is very, very helpful to us. But you know what? Reason doesn't lead us to Jesus. Scripture says our mind has fallen and that it's in need of renewal. The Bible says every thought we have needs to be taken captive unto Christ. Our minds need light because left alone, they will not govern us well. They will lead us astray and they will do us harm. Consider the heart. Our emotions are beautiful and wonderful, and they give our lives depth of feeling and love and all these wonderful things. But, but letting your feelings rule your life, that's a really bad idea. And I say that because Scripture tells us the heart is deceptive above all things. The heart can trick us and lead us astray when we give it sole authority over our lives. We need the Scripture to tame our hearts and to shape our affections because we will absolutely love the wrong things. We will. And then what about tradition? Traditions are good. They serve as a fabric for, for communities and families and, and, and cultures, but traditions are a bad authority. We're Protestants in this room, and we're called Protestants because 500 years ago, a collection of priests and monks finally said the traditions of the church are wrong and they're leading people astray. We, we protest these practices. We need a real authority. We need the Bible and the Bible alone to correct our dogmatic dedication to these wayward traditions. Light broke through the darkness of tradition, even church tradition. These three sources of authority, they are meaningful and important, the mind, the heart, tradition, but they must be subordinate to the word of God. Because here's something you need to believe. No authority you submit to will be as good to you as the Bible. No authority you submit to will be as good to you in your life as the Bible. There are two other light-related phrases that close out verse 19. The day dawning, that refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ's return. Third point, Scripture is Spirit-given. Who gives Scripture its authority? The New American Standard typically gives a word-for-word -word rendering of the Greek text. In verse 20, however... It adds the conjunction but, which is not in the Greek text at all. And there, with that word, it begins a new sentence. And if you have an English Standard Version, it gets it more right by, by continuing the sentence from verse 19, saying, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one, someone's own interpretation. And that word interpretation is very in the category of dangerous, so don't buy his books, don't listen to him. <laughs> But, on one occasion, he was asked by Oprah Winfrey to give his stance as a pastor on homosexuality. Now, Oprah is one of the most beloved women in the world. Millions of people hang on her every word. They read every book she recommends. They go on, you know, every diet she's ever been on, which is a lot of diets. But if you are T.D. Jakes, how do you communicate the essence of the biblical viewpoint in just a few sentences when the cameras are rolling? And this is how he answered the question. And even though I wouldn't 
endorsed T.D. Jakes on just about anything, he, he gave a great answer to her question. He said, Oprah, I'm not called to give my opinion. I'm called as a pastor to give the scriptural position on it. Doesn't mean that I have to agree with you to love you. I don't dislike anybody. I love, every again, not, not an endorsement of his overall ministry. You attend a church like Faith Bible Church because you believe in the authority and inspiration of the Bible. And so what I've said to you today is wisdom and the wisdom of a three-year-old is far, far less than the distance between God's wisdom and yours. That chasm is infinite. So if you expect children to do what they're told to do, even if they don't understand, who are you not to do what God says when you don't understand? You're to do it. Did you ever buy a new car? I only ever bought one brand new car. It was a 2004 Honda Civic, four-door, five-speed. It was gray, super hot car, right? <laughs> I bought it exactly one day before finding out that Mandy was pregnant with our twins. <laughs> so two car seats and a Honda Civic are basically incompatible. But that's not really the point of the story. The, the, the point of the story is when you buy a new car, what do you do? You read the owner's manual more life and more joy and more meaning and more depth of purpose than to not. And by, obe by obeying him over time, you actually get convinced of that. Second point of application, the gospel. The first ever teacher at Princeton Seminary is a man named Archibald Alexander. And he wrote a, a great, brilliant little book called Thoughts on Religious Experience. And, and in it, he talks about the human heart like wax that's used to seal a letter. Now, we don't use wax to seal letters anymore, but in his day, it was common, and I'm sure you've seen it done. You would bring a flame to the wax and apply the softened or melted wax to the closure of your letter, and you would emboss or you would seal it with the, with the face of a signet ring. And Alexander said, the truth of the Bible is like that signet ring, is like that embosser. The, the fire in that illustration, it is the gospel. It is the gospel. All religions have some sort of text that people are supposed to submit to. But, but only Christianity has a God who comes and is himself submissive. You see that? Even submitting himself to death, death on a cross. Why? Why? He did it for you. That's an authority you can trust. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ loves you. Because no one ever gave up what he gave up for you. He's the only authority you can really trust. No one's going to leave you like, love you like Jesus Christ. No one. And the place that Christ is revealed, and the thing though you already know then, and have been established in the truth which is present with you, I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder. Listen, you're like Peter's audience. You already know just about everything that I've told you today. You've already known it. I've given you no new idea. But you know what? You needed to be reminded of it. That's why you're here. 